Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. This is the Den of Geek podcast featuring commentary on the latest news from denofgeek.com as well as other behind the scenes content from your favorite movies, TV shows, and more. My name is Mike. And I'm Dave, and this is episode 14, the early edition of G News for August 2018. And we have a lot of stuff that's going to be current for the last part of the summer, and there's lots of news coming out in all the different areas that Den of Geek covers. And we also have a bonus item to share with you, a really special one that Daniel Curland was able to get with Todd Berger, the uh, screenwriter of Happy Time Murders, which is coming to theaters on August 24th. Really a show that <laughs> a quirky comedy that I'm sure a lot of people are looking forward to. So we'll look forward to hearing from Daniel for that interview later in the podcast. But we have some wonderful stories to share with you, like I said. So let's go right into it with the news for the first half of August. All right, Mike, well, you know well that our experience with Joel Kinnaman goes all the way back to his days on the AMC detective drama The Killing and our first podcast for the now defunct TV talk. So when I first learned he wouldn't be returning for the second season of Altered Carbon, I have to admit I was a little bit disappointed, uh, and I'm sure you are as well. Oh, yeah. Well, that was something that we knew was coming, but it didn't really temper our disappointment. <laughs> yeah. However, the news that Battlestar Galactica's creative force, Ronald D. Moore, is going to be dipping his toes back into the science fiction television pool and bringing with him Joel Kinnaman in a lead role, that definitely got my attention. Yeah, me too. That That's a pairing that bodes well for viewers of sci-fi. Right. Now, currently working on Star's time travel romance, Outlander, Moore's going to create and write the as of now, untitled series, which will imagine what the world would be like if the global space race had never ended. Ah. And in case you missed the news, Apple is jumping into the content creation market as well as the streaming market. And Moore's project is the third scripted drama ordered by Apple. Yeah. Good move, Apple. (laughs) Yeah. Now, though the series was announced last December, as I said, there's still no title. But that said, Kinnaman has now signed on as one of the show's leads, along with Michael Dorman and Sarah Jones. Now, Kinnaman's character, Edward Baldwin, is described as one of NASA's top astronauts, while Dorman and Jones will play halves of the space agency's power couple. Now, in a related piece of news about Kinnaman, he's going to co-star with his killing partner, Mireille Enos, in the Amazon adaptation of the 2011 film, Hannah. Oh, cool. Yeah. Now, Good to see those two together again. Yep. And also on the docket for Apple is a morning show drama series executive produced by and starring Jennifer Aniston and Reese Witherspoon and classic anthology reimagining amazing stories from Spielberg and Brian Fuller. And just to jump back to more for a moment, at this point, it's unclear how his involvement with the time travel romance Outlander is going to affect this project. But for more on this, check out Katie Burt and Joseph Baxter's piece, 
Joel Kinnaman to star in Ronald D. Moore Apple Space Series. Okay, well, there's a quite a few of the properties you mentioned there that Apple's going to be dealing with that I'm excited to see how it turns out and wish Apple the best in the uh, battle for viewer attention. But let's go ahead and stick with uh, TV news. Uh, the one I have is about a show that went off the air and is crazily enough coming back and it's kind of baffling Star Wars fans and that's Star Wars Clone Wars and Megan Krause, our resident Star Wars expert at Den of Geek, wrote an article called How Star Wars Clone Wars Can Be a Better Show. She has some advice to offer because this is kind of a puzzling decision. When Dave Filoni, the man in charge of Star Wars animated series, he hit the stage at San Diego Comic-Con and shockingly announced that 12 new episodes of The Clone Wars will come out, even though the show ended four years ago. And it did certainly have a cliffhanger, which kind of makes it a little bit more enticing. But the timing is kind of odd because not only has The Clone Wars been long dormant, but Disney is pushing a new animated show, Resistance. And the stories of The Clone Wars main characters have mostly been resolved in other media, even though the cliffhanger was there at the end of the series. So Megan was left feeling a little (laughs) ambivalent about this announcement at first. And so she has this advice. I'm just going to give you a couple of the things that she listed. She has a longer list of things she thinks they should cover. One is give the female characters more interior motivation. And I thought this was an interesting one because the main character or one of the leads of the animated series is Ahsoka Tano. And her development was very surface level in the original series, but you know, she's plucky. She's a strong fighter, but really what it amounted to throughout the series is that she liked being a Jedi and doing things that Jedis do. And so her whole motivation for the character seemed to be, I want to be a Jedi. And that really didn't really delve deep into her character. So that's one thing that Megan suggested. Yeah. And that makes a sense because in the era of kick-ass female characters, you you don't want to just be pigeonholed into that one facet. And it sounds like that's what she's talking about here. Exactly. It applies to animated females as well. And last, I just want to mention uh, Megan's one of her other pieces of advice, and there's more in the article, but she says, why not build on the Star Wars content that has been out there? You know, since the Clone Wars went off the air, there've been a ton of movies (laughs) to kind of incorporate. So why not incorporate Ray and Finn and Poe and Kylo Ren into the Clone Wars? So that's interesting advice that Megan has to share. But if you want to read more, check out her article on Den of Geek called How Star Wars Clone Wars Can Be a Better Show. Okay. All right. Well, let's move on to my next story. And I first discovered Ursula K. Le Guin's work when I happened upon a copy of her groundbreaking 1969 work, The Left Hand of Darkness. And while the author died in January, the demand to bring her work to both the big and small screens remains strong, as you might imagine. And a movie adaptation of the telling, as well as a properly reverent telling of Le Guin's sprawling opus, The Earthsea Novels, this latest project's a bit more of an esoteric choice from her catalog, a 1969 novelette called Nine Lives. Now, she's got quite a few hidden gems, though. I, I'm not familiar with that particular one, but... But yeah, it's kind of hit or miss with Le Guin. You can find something really cool and untapped or something a little weird. <laughs> yeah, and it's really hard to believe that more of it hasn't made its way 
onto the screen, you know, whether, yeah, yeah. whether large or small. So here, UK producers Gavin Humphreys of Quark Films and former Sony Pictures International producer Josephine Rose have taken the reins on Nine Lives. And casting choices are reportedly underway, but there are no names attached to the project as of yet. Now, Nine Lives, I really found this interesting, was originally published by Le Guin in Playboy, of all places, in 1969. <laughs> okay. But here's this is fascinating, not surprising, though. Under the commonly practiced tactic at the time that her name be published as U.K. Le Guin to hide her gender, a la Star Trek writer Dorothy D.C. Fontana. Oh, very interesting. So, yeah, uh, sign of the times, I guess. Yeah. Le Guin's dark comedy tells the story of a drilling base on the moon whose bored workers have their spirits lifted when the news that a new round of personnel will soon be joining them. However, their excitement is quickly crushed when they learn that the new personnel are actually a set of 10 clones. <laughs> Who's clones, I wonder? Oh, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Nine Lives writer-director Rodney's actually knew Le Guin, having met the American author after adapting one of her short stories at the NFTS Film School in Buckinghamshire, England. So if you want more on this story, which I, I just can't wait, <laughs> check out Joseph Baxter's piece, Ursula K. Le Guin's Nine Lives to Become a Feature Film, and you'll get much more on the Den of Geek website. All right. Very cool. Yeah. That, that Le Guin is one of my first favorite authors early in my sci-fi reading career. So always have a soft spot in my heart for the Earthsea saga. All right. Well, let's go into some movie news. And this is kind of a quirky article that appeals to me. And I'm just sharing it with you because of my own interest in time travel, which is well established. No, really? <laughs> and Paul Bradshaw wrote a really cool article that caught my eye called 10 underrated time travel movies. And so I'm like, okay, what's he going to come up with? Well, turns out out of the 10, I've only seen three. Wow. <laughs> so, you know, this is a list that I am definitely going to follow up on, but you know, not all time travel movies are created equal. And so he's trying to go for the ones that maybe he feels didn't get a good rap at the time, but you know, you've got the universally loved series like back to the future and Donnie Darko, but there's others that, are pretty much overlooked altogether, sort of like they've slipped between the cracks of a time travel paradox, as Paul puts it. I like it. Uh, and one of, I'm just going to share a few of them with you, not all 10, of course, but one that caught my eye was The Girl Who Leapt Through Time, a 2006 anime from director Mamoru Hosoda, who graduated from Digimon the movie <laughs> to create this underrated anime classic. It's the story of a high school girl who stumbles on the power of time travel. And what I love about it is what does she do with it? Well, she just discovers how much fun a teenager can have with this power. So instead of using it to go back and stop wars and meet dinosaurs and kill Hitler and whatever, <laughs> she just kind of uses it to retake her exams and fix an awkward fling, choosing sort of to relive the same day, kind of like in Groundhog Day, until she gets things right. And of course, there's more to it than that. But the message underneath of it is what really appeals to me because it kind of hints at the fact that you can't stay a kid forever. And that's, I guess, the lesson that comes out of the movie. So sounds pretty cool. Well, now, how did your anime-loving older daughter miss this? <laughs> she might not have. I just, <laughs> I just maybe never talked to her about it. I'll have to ask her later. <laughs> but the other one that's on here that is kind of on the other end of the spectrum, 
because Paul calls it possibly the best movie about time travel that doesn't have a gun or a robot or a DeLorean in it. <laughs> and that's Je t'aime, Je t'aime, coming from the master of cinematic time hopping, Alain René. And of course, the master of cinematic time hopping refers to a narrative style that hops around in time, which we've seen in a lot of movies. But in this particular movie, Je t'aime, Je t'aime, the French master tackled sci-fi head on with the story of a man who volunteers to test a time machine. Obviously it goes wrong and he's left skipping through random episodes of his own life. But what's key here is that Stan Lee loved it and ended up working with Renee on two unmade movies. Michelle Gondry loved it, citing it as a big influence on his movie, eternal sunshine of the spotless mind. But for some reason, and Paul's kind of puzzled by this, it never achieved classic status on its own. So, you know, I'm going to be checking that one out. And there's eight more movies on it. If you're curious, the three on the list that I have seen are Back to the Future 3, which Paul thinks is as good as the other two. And some people feel like it's not. And he he wants to argue that point. Time after time. And of course, I think you've seen this one, Dave. Predestination. And loved all three of those. So if those are any indication, I'm definitely going to like the others on Paul's list. If you want to check it out, check out the article on Den of Geek called 10 Underrated Time Travel Movies. All right. Now, my third and final story for this segment, it's going to be a little different than usual because I really disagree with our Den of Geek reviewer on this one. Oh, okay, cool. (laughs) All right. Now, World War II films continue to score points with critics and moviegoers. And, you know, after the brilliance of Dunkirk, it seems like a given we're going to see more films detailing the people and events of that era. And I have to admit that the Guernsey Literary Potato Peel Pie Society is not ordinarily the type of film I gravitate towards. And <laughs> truth be told, had it not been for my wife's desire to see it, it likely would have avoided my viewing radar. This Netflix offering turns its attention to an island much smaller than most in the English Channel and the plight of the English-speaking people occupied by Nazi Germany for most of the war. So the island's called Guernsey. And it's actually closer to France than it is to England. Mm -hmm. So set primarily in 1946, the Guernsey Literary Potato Peel Pie Society follows Lily James character, Juliet Ashton, a fairly successful writer, especially for a woman in this time period, who, upon learning about this book club these people on Guernsey have, feels compelled to visit them to learn their story. And when living under the gaze of Nazis, bereft of pigs, one of the few things that gave pig farmer Dossie Adams, played by Michelle Huseman, comfort was Juliet's signed and addressed copy of Charles Lamb's essays that she had owned at one time. He, in fact, read it as part of the book club. And we learn in the film that this book club was formed by a small group of strangers in an attempt to build community, friendship, but really to stay alive in the face of the German forces that are in their town. Now, before I go any further, let me just say that I strongly disagree with David Crowe's 2.5 star Den of Geek review of the film as, quote, becoming mired down in the increasingly maudlin intricacies of Elizabeth's removal, one involving illicit affairs and good Germans, the more potent this soap's odor becomes. Now, These aren't soldiers fighting on the battlefield. They're not boat owners risking their lives to aid the men (laughs) and women fleeing the waiting German army. But it doesn't make them any less heroic. Well, you know what? I think David Crow would say to you, Dave, 
I respect that. <laughs> I respect that you like the alternate view presented in the film because it's just one man's opinion. <laughs> Absolutely. And that's what's great about being a critic. Yeah. Nevertheless, David and I do agree on some points, particularly the strong performance of Lily James in the lead role. For fans of the BBC epic, and I know you're a fan of Downton Abbey, Mm -hmm. no fewer than four alums appear in the film. So if you've seen the film, check out David Crow's review, the Guernsey Literary Potato Peel Society review on the Den of Geek website, and tell me, Dave, you're just full of it. (laughs) Or maybe they'll agree. You know, tell us us whether you agree or not, (laughs) and we'll see. But this last piece of news that I want to share with you before we get to our interview is just one that caught my eye. That John Saavedra put together. It's actually a couple of different articles following this craziness that popped up in the video game world surrounding Luigi dying, you know, Luigi of Super Mario fame. So the trailer for Super Smash Brothers Ultimate scared the bejeepers out of some fans of the franchise in the lead up to the game's release on December 7th for Nintendo Switch. So even though we have a long time to wait for the game, people are flipping out because in the trailer, Luigi is entering Dracula's castle to hunt down the ghouls that haunt the ancient structure, kind of like Luigi's mansion back in the Nintendo cube days. So after putting up a brave fight that even famous vampire hunter, Simon Belmont would applaud, Luigi came before death itself and there was no escape for the poor hero suffering a killing blow that sent his soul flying out of his lifeless corpse, becoming the very supernatural specter he swore to vacuum up. (laughs) And those are John's words. So, I mean, it's just very melodramatic the way that people are like, what the heck just happened here? What did I see? And it is quite gruesome if you watch the trailer. So after the fervor died down a little bit, Nintendo UK finally had to take to Twitter with a simple tweet to reassure fans And all the tweet said was, Luigi is okay. (laughs) It's just a promo, and Luigi's unfortunate death is used to illustrate the dangers of the haunted castle and Simon's badassery. So the ghost-busting plumber is still set to appear as one of the game's more than 60 fighters. And Dave, my daughter, when she was in middle school, used to play Super Smash Brothers like crazy. So I know she would probably find this story very interesting as well. Well, and believe it or not, I have no experience with Super Mario Brothers, though I have seen some of Castlevania. So okay. <laughs> what I know, it seems like an interesting pairing. Well, yeah, any everything in Super Smash Brothers is an interesting pairing. So actually, though, John wrote a follow-up article where he said, you know what, this actual death might have been a tease for a new single-player mode for Super Smash Brothers Ultimate. And this was through some detective work on Reddit because that never happens on Reddit. (laughs) But uh, Twitter fans and Redditors kind of took a menu reveal by Super Smash Brothers creator Masahiro Sakurai during Nintendo Direct where they actually blurred out a mode in the game to be announced at a later date. But guess what? Redditor Nintendo said, I can piece that back together, took the blurred image, played around with the pixels and revealed a mode called spirits, which is a rumored single player mode. So there's speculation that spirits mode could refer not only to Luigi's death, but also tease a mode in which players have to recover characters, spirits and reunite them with their bodies. Now it should be said that this is pure speculation and John's just kind of tapping into some of the fan furor out there. But if you want to read more about this developing story, Check out John's articles, Super Smash Brothers Ultimate Luigi's Death Could Hint at New Mode, 
And of course, Luigi not dead after facing Castlevania's Grim Reaper, Nintendo confirms, which is John's revised article after the initial article that everyone was freaking out about. Well, I'm sitting here shaking my head because the (laughs) one game that I do play, as you know, is a driving game and they release silhouetted pictures of cars that maybe are going to come to the game (laughs) and uh, images. Is that a new track? It's like, what's that building? Oh, I'm telling you. I and love people it. will obsess on it. Oh, yes, they will. <laughs> so it doesn't come out to December, but here we go. Well, one thing that's coming out a little bit sooner that you can check out is Happy Time Murders, which is just this crazy looking. Hiring for your small business. If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Movie that I saw advertised up when I was in Montreal, all the bus stops had it. And Daniel Curland got to speak to Todd Berger, who wrote the screenplay for this movie in which puppets coexist alongside humans. And they aren't always so nice to each other. This is an R rated puppet movie guys. And The uh, official synopsis reads, In the seedy underbelly of Los Angeles, two clashing detectives, one human and the other a puppet, must work together to solve the brutal murders of former cast members of a beloved puppet TV show. So let's take a listen to Daniel Curlin's interview with Todd Berger. It's no surprise that television and film have entered a sort of ungodly level of quality. Some of the most ambitious, challenging content of all time is being put out there, and while that's super exciting, there's also very clearly a homogenization taking place in cinema, too. Franchises, reboots, and superhero films now reign supreme, and even if those are a lot of fun, it does often mean that genuinely original ideas are being seen less and less. Now, Todd Berger and Brian Henson have put something very special together with the film The Happy Time Murders. It's an R-rated puppet movie, which hasn't really happened since Peter Jackson's cult classic Meet the Feebles, which, see Meet the Feebles if you haven't seen Meet the Feebles, we're so used to puppets being cute and for kids, so it's very exciting when a film decides to skewer that idea and go in the opposite direction. The Happy Time Murders creates a unique world where humans and puppets coexist, and then dips it all in the crime genre on top of that. We spoke to the film's screenwriter, Todd Berger, about the many complexities of this puppet madness and the strange, long journey it took to bring the movie to life. 
it's obviously clear that you have like a real love and respect for puppets, but do you have like a favorite film scene that involves puppets that like really inspired you or got in your head when you were growing up or anything like that? The first thing that just popped into my head, like I never really thought about this before, but when you asked me that question, the first thing that popped into my head was Miss Piggy riding a motorcycle through a window in the great puppet caper. Mm-hmm. That's something that happens, right? I'm yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I think it's great that you mentioned that because <laughs> what I would say is like, like there's that moment in the original Muppet movie where it's that wide shot of Kermit riding his bike on the street. Bike, yeah. And I remember yeah. just being like, how are they doing that? And like, that's what really woke me up for the first time, I think. And then on the opposite side of that, just like the New York, New York sequence in Gremlins 2, where everything is just like going off the rails is. Yeah, yeah. Oh, Gremlins 2. Oh, I didn't even think of Gremlins 2 as being a puppet movie, but that was, that's a classic. That is an underrated classic. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I kind of forgot. One day, I was, like, trying to relax, and it was during the 2016 election, and I was like, I need to get away from the election. I just need to think. I just want to watch a movie. And I put on Gremlins 2, and I was like, oh, right. Donald Trump is the villain in this movie. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Not so much city. Like, I forgot that clamp is basically just Trump. And mm-hmm. there's Trump power. Yeah. And I was like, oh. And then I turned on Home Alone 2 a couple days later after the election, and I forgot Donald Trump was in Home Alone 2. Right. Yeah. No, it's crazy. (laughs) It's really weird. Yeah, for Happy Time Murder, we had a lot of conversations about the scene that you're referring to in the Muppet movie with Kermit's riding the bike, how when we all saw that when we were kids, we were like, what? Mm -hmm. And in Happy Time Murder, there's a bunch of stuff like that with where they use CG and green screen technology and puppeteering to have puppets do stuff that you've never seen puppets do before and that hopefully will get the same reaction out of people to be like, whoa, how do they do that? So we'll see. Yeah. Well, I was going to ask too, like, is that something you were very conscious of going into the movie to like try and have these set pieces that were very pushing the envelope for what's been done with puppets and trying to like you have like them in jacuzzis and like water stuff and just like you do go pretty far. So when I first went to Grant, you know, like 15 years ago, mm-hmm. my friend D. Austin Robertson and I, we created the characters and we kind of hashed out the story and then I went off to write the script. And our intention at the time, back when we were 22 year old, stupid, we're like, we're going to, we're going to raise $25,000 and go make this movie feature because you can do that, right? Like, what puppets are in the background? Are they right. eating at the next table? What do they look like? 
because they were puppet chefs, like, back in the kitchen. And on top of that, they were really into the idea of, it's a new day, it's, we have advancements in puppet technology, like, what can we do with puppets in these action sequences or in some of these fun scenes that, uh, you know, I had never even considered. Like, right. I didn't know anything about actual puppeteering when I wrote the script. Uh-huh. But then working with the masters, they're like, well, we can do this or that kind of thing. And uh, there's a dance sequence at one point that was going to involve like, four or five puppeteers all wearing green screen body suits, like manipulating different parts of the puppet. Wow. And they really just thought, like, how can we take puppet, uh, puppeteering to the next level? Because now this is a sandbox to play in some of the advances in technology. You could do stuff like that. Right. It's funny, you just mentioned, like, the, the universe you've created and just having them in the background. And, like, I feel there's a real, like, who framed Roger Rabbit sort of vibe going on in terms of this, like, universe where just humans and puppets coexist. Was that kind of looked at at all as, like, a benchmark? Oh, absolutely. Or, yeah? I mean, oh, I, one of my favorite movies growing up was Roger Rabbit, and I always loved the idea that there was this world in which humans and cartoons kind of coexisted in Los Angeles. And I mean, when I moved to Los Angeles and I was working with Dee on coming up with the story and the characters and everything, our inspiration were Who Framed Roger Rabbit, of course, Meet the Feeble. Ooh, okay. Because Meet, Meet the Feeble, Dee and I actually bonded over our love of Meet the Feeble. Yeah. We were in college together. And we're, you know, that was the late 90s where you actually had to go to video stores and track that stuff down. Mm-hmm. And I remember discovering Peter Jackson from The Frighteners. Like, right. The Frighteners. And yeah. The Frighteners was awesome. It's great. Today, I don't think Frighteners gets enough credit. And a great and Michael J. Fox role. Yeah. And a great score. Like, I listen to The Frighteners score all the time, like, when I'm writing. Danny Elfman, like, using Carpticord. But from The Frighteners, like, conversation, eventually I found Dead Alive. And then from Dead Alive, I found The Feeble. And I thought I was the only person you know, <laughs> in America, we've seen this movie, and then I met this guy in college who was also people, and we bonded over I love these people. And so, meet the people who came out around it. And then, when we were first talking about the idea back in the early 2000s, I was really into Training Day. Mm-hmm. Training Day had just been like in theaters. It was yeah. one of the first, it was one of the only DVDs I owned. <laughs> okay. Uh, like, I owned like five DVDs. Like, Best Do the Show, like a Monty Python thing, and Training Day. And yeah. when I went to Los Angeles, you know, from, I just thought Training Day was like what Los Angeles was like. And so I watched Training Day a lot. And then when, when Dean and I were working on the idea, and then when I was writing the script, I, I swirled together, beat the people. Yeah. Hearing you say those things, I was going to ask, like, have you thought at all about this film obviously tackles the cop genre? If you were to do a potential sequel to the film, do you know what that might look like? Or if you try to mash up other genres with puppets? But like hearing you talk yeah. about the Frighteners, like like a puppet horror film would be such an interesting endeavor. Absolutely. Brian and I have actually talked about in the future, because, you know, now that they have the infrastructure to make these movies, yeah. um, not only looking at Happy Time murder potential sequels, where it's like, you know, further cases involving these cops, but we've also talked like the expanded... Ooh, the connecting. ...this world where puppets and humans coexist, and there's a history, and like there's an infrastructure of the fictional Los Angeles that's created. It's so years ago, Brian was like, before the movie got greenlit by yeah, Brian was like, start thinking about other genres of movies set in this world. Mm-hmm. Set in the world in which humans and puppets coexist. And my first inclination, um, me and I actually sat down one day and we hashed out a whole plot for a 
Oh, cool. A good fellow set in the world where puppets and humans coexist. Mm-hmm. What would that be like? And we have an online room for that, actually. Maybe, maybe who knows? Maybe that'll be next. That's very cool. Picked around, picked around like period pieces, uh, you know, and yeah, horror movies, you know, slasher movies, right? Uh, Western. Like you can take <laughs> a, any genre and set it in the world where humans and puppets coexist. Uh-huh. figure out how to look at it from a fun angle. I also think it's, like, really great that you actually have puppeteer Bill Beretta play Phil Phillips rather than, like, some A-list celebrity doing the voice. Was that, like, a difficult push at all to the studio? Oh, yeah. I mean, that was a sticking point for Brian for years. Because the thing about, you know, the movie, it took a long time to get made. And, and kind of one of the things we ran into is they would oftentimes send it to an actor or an actress who would read the script and be like, hey, this is really funny. I want to be the puppet. Right. I want to be that, that puppet. And the way the Henson Company works, the way Brian explained it to me, was like, no, 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 no. Puppet, puppeteering is done by professional puppeteers. It's not animation. Because a lot of people just don't understand how it works. It's mm-hmm. animation where you can record your voice and then a puppeteer will come on set like drunk history or something and will mimic you. Yeah. But that's not how it works. You can't just be the voice of a puppet because the puppets are actually there in the face interacting with the other actors. So if you go to some A-list actor and they say, well, I want to be a puppet, then the counter would be, cool, do you want to learn puppeteering? <laughs> right, yeah. Do you want to go to, do you want to go intensively train how to be a puppeteer? And that's when they're like, oh, no, no, never mind. But no, Interesting. Brian always took it as done that like the puppets in this movie are going to be puppeteers by the people doing the voices who are going to be there. And that's how we do things. Right. And everyone was very respectful of that. And cool. there were even probably chances of some actors sign on and we were like, no, that's not how it works. And uh, I think that was pretty cool. Awesome. Also, like, Bill Beretta is maybe even a more perfect cop name than Phil Phillips. <laughs> <laughs> like, right? Like, that's too perfect. Yeah. I like, too, that they're, like, you guys obviously go for everything in this film, but, like, were puppet sex scenes something that you were quite adamant about making the cut? Like, did those go through a lot of changes through development? Well, so when we were creating the world, uh, we really, like, all sat back to what would the world be like where puppets coexist, and, like, what kind of subculture would puppets have? What things would they do that are unique to puppets, you know? And things like puppets aren't drug addicts. They don't do drugs, they do sugar. Like, puppets have a special weird reaction to sugar. So okay. Puppets are, like, puppets who are addicted to sugar are called sugar snacks. They hate the sugar snack them. And so they, know, they have no interest in cocaine or heroin because they do anything for them. Or puppets are afraid of dogs. Puppets and dogs are kind of at war with each other because dogs just think puppets are toys. Okay. So <laughs> yeah. The street and, there's a, and there's a loose dog without a leash. It's like terrifying to you if you're a puppet because the dog can just literally rip your head off and mm-hmm. kill you. So that's like a thing puppets have to worry about. If someone has a dog off leash, it's like a problem for them. And, but then another aspect is like what puppet sets like. And, you know, I've always thought that like the, the sex scene that's in Happy Time Murders, it's not like it's supposed to be some overly kinky, crazy sex scene. It's like, no, this is how puppets always have sex. Right, okay. So, like, if any two puppets have sex with each other, it gets real crazy because they're puppets and they just do things differently. Like, another aspect of the movie, of the world, is that puppets just inherently want to sing and dance. Like, yeah. Like, born with this innate gene where they just want to sing and dance all the time. It's just part of who they are. But their sexual appetite is more expensive than a normal human just because they're puppets. So, we always, from the beginning, were like, if, if we do the sex scene, we're 
Right. But don't bring his movie. <laughs> so if you see an overabundance of, you know, the sex scene in the trailer or in media, I think part of it is because it's... it's to steer them away. You want, it, you want to entice people to see the movie. But another part of it is we want you really to know that it's not for kids. Right. Like, do not... If you do not think this is appropriate, do not bring your children to see this movie. Because if it's a trailer filled with puppets holding guns and, like, chase scenes and stuff, you might be a seven-year-old. Oh, a seven-year-old could go to that, but we really don't want to. Yeah, yeah. Good point. Well, on the singing and dancing note, too, I heard that at one point there was a singing penis puppet that was in play that unfortunately got cut out of the final edit. Yeah, that was that was like one of the one things that we sat back and we're like, do we need that? I mean, it was funny because we actually we had a lot of conversations about the logistics of how puppets work. Sure. So there was a scene where Melissa McCarthy's character goes to a bar and there's a puppet bartender who mentions that he has a puppet penis. But the penis, but then we were, and the, and the penis sings, like we sing songs. Okay. But then we got into this whole question of like, wait, so is the penis a separate puppet with its own personality? Right, right. Mind, or is it just an extension of the bartender? So does that mean all puppets have penises that can sing? Or is this some kind of weird growth on this guy? We got really complicated uh, in trying to figure out what is, why exactly a puppet would have a singing that's, but in the end, we just thought, do we really need this? This isn't like advancing the plot or have anything to do with the character. Yeah. So maybe, maybe we don't need the plot. So we kind of get to that. Cool. Do you have um, a favorite scene from the film that just, like, came together beautifully beyond what you could have imagined when you wrote it? Or just, like, a certain moment that really stands out to you from production? Um, there's, like, a crime scene. Other characters murdered. And, and there's a crime scene sequence in like a Hollywood Hills, like a nice Hollywood Hills house. Okay. And, I, and really, the murder by unusual means. I don't want to give it away, but there's a murder because the way also you can murder puppets kind of unusual because they're not like you know. You know right, right. There's other things you can do. So there's a murder sequence followed by the crime scene that I think is really, really funny and all like just pretty much like a direct split from my imagination of how I always envisioned it. Because one of the things that I always thought would be really funny about the movie and that, you know, Brian embraced and that everybody embraced was that people within this universe treat violence towards puppets very seriously. Okay. That's kind of why it's funny. So when you walk into a crime scene and there's fluff all over the ground, the characters in the movie, humans or puppets, treat it as if it's like horrible, like, oh God. Oh, I need to walk outside. Yeah. It's hard to look at. Like, it's a slaughter. Like, there's bloody guts everywhere. But to you, the audience, you're like, this is ridiculous. It's mm-hmm. a It's just white cotton. But to the character, it's like, oh my God, this is a horrible mess. So, there's a really fun murder slash crime scene that I think is, is pretty great. And I, it's probably my favorite. Awesome. I guess just last question, Todd, and I know you said obviously you guys wanted to delineate this as its own universe, but if you could involve one real puppet in like a non-canonical Happy Time Murders context, whether it's like a Muppet or Dark Crystal character or like Alf or just any Muppet, who would it be and like either as a quick cameo or like a full-on role and like what, what do you think? Oh, well, I mean, let's, let's really go for it. Let's yeah. Get a, let's, let's, let's bring the meat the people cast. Okay. 
somehow into the Happy Time universe. I mean, the Happy Time gag is a show that existed back in the 90s in the fictional universe that mm-hmm. I loved, but why there also could have been a rival show in New Zealand called Meet the Feebles, and perhaps some of those characters are still around in 2018 or 2019, and uh, have somehow made their way to Los Angeles and get mixed up with uh, some of the characters. Yeah, I mean, that would work. That, that lines up. <laughs> cool. Okay, I realized that was a long one there, but Daniel had so many good things uh, to tease out of Todd. I love that last little bit there where he asked him, what other puppets from other franchises might you want to see in this? And of course, he picked Meet the Feebles, which is the Peter Jackson uh, black comedy back in 1989, which is a, a wonderful choice. Lest people think that adult puppet shows are something new. It definitely isn't. Hey, how about Rigel? Yeah, there you go. (laughs) From Farscape. Yep, exactly. So uh, if you want to check out more, definitely check out the movie. Happy Time Murders is releasing on August 24th. So lots of great stuff. Like I said, I really enjoyed uh, talking about some of these pieces that showed up in the first couple weeks of August. But that's going to be it for this installment of the Den of Geek podcast. Join us again in two weeks for the August 2018 late edition of G News, when we'll hash out the latest from denofgeek.com and share some more behind-the-scenes content from your favorite television shows, movies, and more. And if you enjoyed this episode, please be sure to rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts. We're on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and SoundCloud. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.